I welcome my buddy Andy to the show today. So if you don't know about him, he's someone you should get to know, whether it's in the strength conditioning field, any type of strength performance, fitness, wellness, you pretty much name it. And the guy is, in my opinion, like, I don't like using the word guru, but from people that are my age and know, you know, know what's going on, he knows his stuff. Um, if you don't know, he's, you know, basically he has his own company. He's the owner of Performance Vibe, which I believe is like a training company. Um, he has CEO of Allostatic at Labs. I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but I'll let you talk for a second. Um, contributor to Muscle and Fitness. And this is like a little bio that I love that he has on his Instagram. But the one question I want to start with is he calls himself a humans, uh, human performance theorist. So I find that very interesting. Andy, thanks for coming on. I just want to see, what does that mean to you? What is a human performance theorist? Yeah, first and foremost, thanks for having me on the show, Jeff. It's something I really appreciate doing. I love speaking, spreading the word, and kind of sharing the unique message I tend to carry with all my businesses and like entrepreneurial kind of fellowships I do with different businesses. Like you mentioned muscle and fitness. I work very often with Train from Rebel Performance, Evil Genius and Broderick Chavez, as well as Alex Kiekel, the prep coach, and Beast Fitness Radio. So it's something I'm just passionate about sharing in general and that kind of just perfectly leads me into the concept of the human performance theorist in general so i came up with the term because i just felt like there was no accurate like category or niche whatever you want to call it for what we do so when you say the term personal trainer the first thing that comes to mind is some average joe schmo working with like a 50 something year old lady doing tricep pushdowns you know the sad part about that is that's demoralizing to the personal trainer because that term has nothing to do with how intelligent they are what they're doing for work actually and it almost more sounds like you're kind of like a dog walker so then you kind of flip over to like the strength conditioning coach world. Now we start talking about strength and conditioning, and then you have these two adjectives in your job description that are just like two random variables that make it sound like you're just some yelling, angry meathead, and you only care about, you know, strength and conditioning, quote unquote. So that doesn't seem accurate either. So the way I kind of came up with that is that, you know, there's millions of ways to skin the cat. There's no perfect or correct avenue to biologically pursue to get the results you want you know it's really an individual specific phenomenon how do i take this person from point a to point b because most of the time you know sally doesn't care about the biological cascades you're pursuing as a coach she only cares about if she has a good quality of life and if she actually gets to point b so that's where the theorist part comes into play. Like I said, there's no actual correct way to talk about it. And then human performance made sense to go with that because performance is an ambiguous adjective. You kind of apply to anything. What's your performance like at work? What's your performance like in your intra and interpersonal social relationships? What about your performance in the gym? What about just how you perform through your quality of life? You know, how you get through the day. Performance can also describe that. So to me, it's just a really, really simple way to look at the fact that I help humans get better at doing some type of task, period. Yeah, and I, I love how you separate that because I think there is that stigma of you now like personal trainers and you see them in the LA fitnesses and things like that compared to where you take it to this whole nother level of like helping people at such a deeper level, but bringing the science side to it to an extreme, which 
it really, like you said, it, it I mean, we're not walking someone, holding someone's hand to an extent you are, but you're bringing them to another level. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just educating them at a higher level too. Um, I love that. So tell me a little bit about the performance vibe. So that's something you started a little, how long ago did you start that and kind of what does that entail? Damn. So as an official business, I think I, March will make three years okay. about. So the performance vibe in my mind is kind of more of like a community and like a idea-based expression system that people share. So this is something I originally started with Nick Hadge and it was just like a way in which we kind of trained at first, you know, cause when we were freshmen and sophomores in college, at one point we were left to our own devices for training from sophomore year till when we graduated. And instead of kind of like hitching on to some random program or doing just random stuff in general, we kind of just like started molding into our own thing. So that's where the term, the performance vibe comes from. Cause it's like an energy um, so that you carry with you as you train. So, for example, you can take performance vibe concepts that we might talk about at a later time and apply it to the 531 program. It's kind of the overarching idea at first. It's kind of like a lifestyle community type thing. So now that we've progressed it into an actual business, I am the one that handles like taxes, all the business stuff, the social medias and that type of deal. And it's more of a platform for people to learn about that vibe. And then obviously I provide services like consultations, coaching, seminars and all that other stuff, free content on YouTube, Instagram and the website itself. So it in of itself has become a business that allows people to kind of change their exercise based lifestyle and then implement some cool science and training along the way. Cool. That's really cool. I mean, that way you get to connect with more people too. I mean, you get to impact more people at that scale. Yeah, because kind of like what I said before, there's a thousand ways to skin the cat. If you right. like to do 531, that's awesome. You're going to get results. But what happens to be the biggest uh, variable in the amount of results you get is your perception. And that's kind of what I was saying about the performance vibe being like an exercise-based lifestyle. It's how you look at things. It's the intent you bring to the workout and how you approach things, not necessarily the workout itself. Gotcha. So kind of going into that realm and take maybe a step back of like how you got into things um, and your view on how you kind of went about this. What, where did you get started? How did you get involved in whether it was working out or, or, you know, the term fitness, I guess, in general, like, were you, did you start young or like, what was your story kind of how you got into it? Yeah, so that's kind of interesting, and it kind of leads into the performance vibe very well. I started training and exercising very young, uh, and I think it was the seventh grade, early in the seventh grade, because I was very overweight. So I grew up in an immigrant household. Both my parents are of Cuban descent born there. So I was, like, as a kid, always, like, given praise for eating more food. The more food I could eat, the more my parents and grandparents, like, cheered for me as a little kid, you know. And that's not on them. You know, coming from a different country, to them, that was success, and it showed health in me as a child, you know, but I've always been extremist. So, you know, little Andy took that way too far. And by the seventh grade, I was in like the 180 pound range and I was like, 
four foot six, four foot seven. So I was a hefty little meatball. You were a powerful kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a hefty little meatball. And I actually remember my very first workout was Monday, National Chest Day, with my older cousin. And I missed bench pressing the barbell. He unracked it for me, gave it to me. And I remember it crashing onto my chest. And I was like, oh, my God. How do, what is this? That's I actually never stopped since. Um, besides, like, very recently when I uh, tore my pec and had a hand injury, I took, like, two to three weeks off of just training as a whole, just doing exercise. But from seventh grade until then, I never stopped training. I got immediately addicted. And what I noticed was I didn't get results that great. You know, obviously being a very young adolescent kid, super overweight, it's like the worst possible environment for like exercise adaptation. But even as I lost the weight, I noticed that I wasn't like gifted. Like it was so hard for me to get stronger, to notice changes in my body. And that's kind of what sparked the science in me. I was like, well, you know, let me just learn more. And then I learned a little bit, saw my results increase. And I was like, okay, now this is kind of cool. Then I went to Springfield college for exercise science or applied exercise science. And then from there on, the rest is kind of history. After I graduated, I spent a full year at community college just studying shit I found important. So I did general biology, organic chemistry, general chemistry, and biochemistry, and I loved all that. So that's kind of the extent of my academia, but it really all came from like a desperate type uh, perspective. I was like, man, I got to get better. How do I get better? If it's not already happening, what can I learn about to optimize the things I'm already doing? Yeah, I can relate to that story to an extent and with myself even because I don't feel like genetically I was built to like lift weights or bodybuild. Like I had long limbs, long arms, long legs, and pulling, you know, sh- really short insertion bicep. Like my, you know, these, these horrible genetics for it. So it was kind of interesting too, is I was lucky where I was very thin. So like when I put muscle on, it was easy. I would say it was easy. You'd see it quicker, but my caloric intake had to be through the goddamn roof just to like, you know, put anything on. So I relate to like that side. And then the educational side, I jumped into it very similar to you. You took it to a deeper level, but me, it was a similar idea. Like I had to figure it out because I just, I didn't get strong very quick and it took forever to put size on. Um, it's interesting too. You translate really well into the science side and then you just really, it seemed like just one after another, like, you know, wanting to educate yourself more, doing tons of research on your own, really wanting to learn the craft and just more how to apply it to yourself. Where do you think that drive came from? Was it just the interest of that and wanting to get better? Because um, I, I would consider you one of the most, you know, every time I see anything you're doing, it's like new thing going on, doing this. You're a very driven guy. Where do you think that came from? Um, To be honest, it's so like I said, personality wise, I'm just an extremist in general. If I like something, I love it. And if I'm not into it, I pretty much hate it. Gotcha. But um, I think that really just comes from like the immigrant upbringing. Like my, you know, my father came over at 12 years old um, to the United States, not speaking a lick of English, and they had no money. So it's like that upbringing on his end taught him to have insane amounts of grit and effort and that kind of like relentless drive. And then, you know, I grew up around that. So I, 
you know, what came first, like chicken or the egg, nature versus nurture? Like, right. did my immigrant upbringing make me an extremist or was I already an extremist facilitated by immigrant upbringings? But regardless, it gives us the same product. Like, my parents just always taught me and by watching them I saw them live that creed of if you do something you absolutely have to not just give it all you have but just not stop just because you fall on your face once doesn't mean oh I suck at this I'm done now it's like that's all the more reason to try even harder you know I uh, remember even up until recently I've seen my parents go through so much stuff and when I just kind of take a step back and analyze it and I look at it I'm like oh my god how are are these people doing this like my parents recently went through some very difficult hardships and i'm sitting here thinking like i don't know if i could do that if i could survive what they have survived so i think a little bit comes from motivation for my family and most of it definitely comes from that upbringing just like you know you might not get another chance or there might not be another opportunity for you to keep going in the future so you have to do it now gotcha I mean, that makes a lot of sense just from your family side of it. I mean, um, you know, just having them, you know, subconsciously even probably like just taking those traits, that mm -hmm. hardworking, like just got to do what you got to do to make it work. What was the transition? So you obviously were very passionate about improving yourself. You know, you said you're an overweight kid, educating yourself on that side. What what made you want to instantly go into training? Because I know a lot of athletes or people that are passionate about it, maybe want to do it on their own, but they don't really want to work with other people where you instantly kind of like, I want to, to teach people what I know and help educate people and try to get them better. I just kind of had a knack for it. Um, so I, I'm definitely a savant. Um, I'm deficient in oxytocin, glutathione, and lactobacillus ruteri. So I guess you could say that puts me on the ASD end of things. Um, I don't think that's necessarily like an excuse or a caveat or, you know, something that makes me better at what I do, but it does give me that little bit of like obsessiveness and it gives me that uh, dissociation so I can understand weird things. I think the reason I'm so good at physiology and that type of chemistry stuff is because I can see it in my head. And because it doesn't exist, most people can't see it in their head. So like, for example, if we're talking about like muscle length, physiology, like anatomy and kinesiology, that's typically much easier for people to pick up because you can look at a skeleton. You can shorten a bicep fiber and see elbow flexion decrease. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Uh I can see, like, I just kind of see those things in my head as far as, you know, chemistry. Like, when I see methylation occur, I can literally see CH3 groups moving from one compound to another in my head. So I think that weird little aspect of my personality does help me play out. But I love to talk. I love to share it. And then it kind of just became the thing where, you know, I, at a young age, early in college, I was just, like, the smart kid, you know? It was like, hey, if you want to talk about, like, hormones or training or just talk shop with someone I ended up being that person and then people started you know coming to me more and more I started wanting to help people and then I just kind of got hit with that um love for it once I started helping people I was like wow I'm not crazy my ideas actually are kind of valid and I made a difference in this person's life that makes me feel good and it almost like pays the cost of you know, the selfish guilt you get of constantly working. Like, you know, I spend a ton of 
hours reading by myself. I spent a ton of time just doing things by myself, um, not purposely, but because I work so hard, kind of secluding myself from culture as a whole. And there is a little bit of guilt that comes along with that. So I think helping others in like a meaningful way ameliorates that guilt. And then it just becomes a thing where it's like, all right, this is what I do now. Yeah. And I, do you So with that being said, do you consider yourself more of a photographic memory or you feel like you're just putting in a lot? Like when you read something, you pick it up pretty quickly. Uh, definitely both, but it's very subject specific. For okay. example, if it's anything outside of like the chemical, biological, physiological realm, I don't have that knack for it. But I could read a like allostasis, homeostasis, and the cost of physiological adaptation is my favorite book of all time. Exactly. I've read it, I've read it <laughs> once, truthfully, and I can pretty much tell you what happens in every chapter. Gotcha. And it's just like kind of how it works. And then, you know, like I said, it's self fulfilling. So I might naturally have that, but I also work so hard that I don't lose that quality. So it's hard to answer, but it's definitely like a two pronged effect. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's if you're passionate about it, it's going to stick because you're more interested in it. So, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? So it goes so, both ways. Yeah. And, and you know what? Something it's a good transition here is so obviously, um, you know, you coach. You still both coach Nick and Zach, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So sure. Anyone doesn't know Nick and Zach Hatch, Hatch brothers, both competitive strongmen um, doing a lot of big things there. And with Andy coaching them, um, I want to transition to this because a lot of stuff you do, because I know them, I know you coach a lot of other people too. Um, but with them specifically, because I personally know them, something you do, which I think is awesome, especially, and you know the strongman field side a lot more, is the amount of movement prep, the amount of science that you're bringing into the sport, um, you know, with uh, Rob Kearney, like, you know, his background, all those guys, the amount of stuff that you and, and all these people, maybe from Springfield or the science side, I love, because um, I feel like that sport is typically your stereotypical, like strongman lift heavy things. But you see guys like Nick and Zach, you know, Rob at a smaller body weight, you know, taking a lot of that science side to it and being competitive in the sport. Um, so with that being said, do you feel like the sport's changing a bit with like more guys like you coaching it and, and maybe other coaches bringing that side into the sport more. Yeah, I think it's definitely a big boom in strongman that people are doing things a bit more intelligently, but I'm seeing it across the fitness industry as a whole. And I think it's nothing more than the concept of if you're putting in all of the work already, you might as well maximize your return on the investment. You know, I think, in strength sports specifically, I know you've seen this in bodybuilding in the past where people were just beating themselves over the head with methods, concepts, and ideas that aren't giving them the most return on their investment, like I said. So for example, if you want to get better at a certain skill, let's say it's the yoke walk, and you're just beating yourself over the head doing the heaviest yoke you can all the time, and you're constantly pushing like a compensatory pattern or just beating the crap out of yourself when are you actually getting better you know when are you teaching that a your brain this is how we walk with load when are you teaching your biology when we deplete ourselves of oxygen this is what we do when are you doing anything outside of just training grit you see what i mean right. so i think that's kind of where it starts and then to go from there it's how can we maximize our results 
while minimizing the potential for risk. So that's kind of where like the concept of movement prep, the way I prescribe it as a whole has been birthed because it's like, wow, I can make aerobic adaptations which means like how you use oxygen in a relaxed setting for all the listeners. How can I make glycolytic adaptations? Meaning how do I get energy when I'm out of oxygen or low on oxygen? And lastly, how can I improve my anatomical structures all at the same time with minimal to no load and minimal to no risk? I started putting together these movement prep circuits, these little concepts, these jumps that are kind of funky, but have a specific pattern and a specific purpose. And then they started working. And now it's all of a sudden you spend 30 to 40 minutes doing some holistic specific exercises. And then when you go to train, not only are you getting stronger, you're safer and you're now in better shape. So you don't need to spend one extra day a week doing conditioning or at the end of the session, when you've already damaged your muscle fibers, then start pushing the sled and potentially decrease the rate at which you respond to the heavy squats or heavy yoke walk or however you damage those muscle fibers. So it's really just an optimization type deal. How can I get the most out of every single molecule of energy I'm breaking down? Yeah, I think that's something that's got to be talked about a lot more is from the movement prep side to, the, like you said, the stereotypical, like just grit. You know, I obviously saw a lot more of it in bodybuilding side. And I was just talking to a kid yesterday, and you know, competitive bodybuilder. He's 24 years old and he's already breaking down, you know, you know, great physique, developed muscle, strong, but his joints are beat up. You know, he's tight as can be. And you look him in and he just has that old school mentality of like, just move the weight lots of volume. And, you know, I'm like, dude, if you cut back two days of training and cut your, and, you know, and worked on more being more efficient, like the, it'd be unbelievable how much stronger and bigger he'd be because he's just breaking himself down day after day now at this point. And he's just not doing the little things. Absolutely. And like, I'm not going to lie. It's not free. Meaning you have to try harder. You know, it's, takes a lot more mental effort to do let's say an rdl correctly than it does just to hook up to a cable and do an rdl with the cable supporting you you see what i'm saying so there is a cost you have to mentally work harder and i'm not gonna lie you have to physically work harder um there is a reason that like myself and the hadge brothers and i call them the colonel but rob kearney is known for working harder than everybody else and it's because they actually do Everything that the four of us do with intent is done with maximum intent. When I start warming up, I'm not just laying on a foam roller or rolling out my traps and like mindlessly doing it. I'm thinking about where along this muscle fiber am I? Am I applying the right pressure in the right area? And is this giving me what I want to get out of it? So it is more cerebral. You do have to work harder. But the way I see it is you're already at the gym. You're already planned on working hard. And like in the case of that kid you talked about, you obviously have big goals anyway. So like what's the cost of working or thinking a little harder? You see what I'm saying? Like I don't really see it. Yeah. And I guess a mix of that is people being uneducated, number one, not knowing enough not doing the research on their own, which just goes into a, maybe a work ethic side of it too. Cause there's so much information out there. Like you said, I'm not a books and things that you're reading. There's no reason you, you can't educate yourself in it more. Um, but the other side of it is just people being lazy. I think that's, everyone wants the quick fix. Everyone thinks things are easy, whether it's getting really strong or putting on a ton of mass, 
They're like, oh, you know, they think it's going to take a year. It's just not the case. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, um, it's funny. Like, calories in, calories out is making, like, a whole nother roundabout. I feel like every 10 years that becomes the big thing, right. you know? But, like, you know, you said you're a bodybuilder. And if you look back into the 80s and 90s and you look at what they were eating for nutrition and stuff, they weren't concerned with calories. They were concerned with putting down good foods that digested well. It was largely intuitive, but it was around what are you doing for the day? What am I training? Everyone knew back then if you were training legs, you had more food than if you were just training arms. And that kind of in and of itself leads us to believe that there are there's more to it than calories in, calories out. I think the reason it's making that round now and becoming so popular all over again before it dies off and becomes popularized in another 10 years is that it's easy and lazy. If you don't want to eat a damn thing all day and then get home from work, put down a pint of ice cream and eat some like random crap and go to bed, calories in, calories out tells you you did the right thing. But I'm a coach and you're a coach and we both know that's not going to get you leaner or healthier, but calories in, calories out saves you. So it's the same thing with training. You know, that kid you mentioned might know his joints feel like shit and he might even know the answers. If you're good at a sport, odds are you've probably met someone pretty smart at a certain point in your life. So he might even know how to get the answers, but because he doesn't want to take that extra step, like you said, and he's stuck in a tad bit of laziness, that's where he is. You know, it takes that extra effort to make that next step to get the optimal results. Right. Yeah. And that's the difference from being like, hey, the average Joe thinks you look good or he thinks you're strong to being Rob and having the U.S. world record press at 285 pound body weight. You know, like Mm -hmm. that's the difference. Exactly. Um, Cool. So I want to talk a little bit about you for a second with your. uh, So you're obviously competing strong, man. That's like your bit, you know, but you recently just had a setback. What was, um, you know, you pulled out of the competition. Do you mind talking about, like, kind of um, your, like, I guess where you were at in Strongman, kind of um, what your goals are with it, and then how that setback kind of threw you off a little? Great question. So um, it actually started with a contest I did in November. So um, for me, first and foremost, what I get off on is doing just, like, crazy stuff. You know, I'm not the type of person that's like, I have to win for like self validity and confidence. You know, that doesn't really appeal to me. What appeals to me is, you know, being a science nerd, kind of playing that biological game and then seeing how real I can make it. So the last two years, I actually competed in every single weight class in strongman, 175, 200, 231 in heavyweight. That's wild. And it's not that I was even... (laughs) morbidly obese at any point i didn't get any heavier than like 220 um i just follow a meal plan all year round so it's easy for me to like flux my body weight it's like okay you know i don't have that lag time where i want to gain weight you up your calories and nothing happens you know the second my food intake changes my body responds so that's how i'm able to do that but i did that for about two years straight i had a little bit too much fun and as i was cutting down to the 175 class for the most recent part of the year i started accumulating some like little injuries nothing that had to do with training per se but like my bones just didn't feel as protected you know i rolled my ankle and it took like a while to come back you know um 
I had an issue with an axle clean where I had a great rep, but all of a sudden afterwards, my knee swelled up and then uh, just very little things. So that's when it started like creeping into my head. Like maybe I'm pushing it a little too far. The icing on the cake was first warm up set for the first day of world's strongest man. I broke my hand in two places and I was like, all right, this is funky. I'm already qualified for the Arnold though. So I might as well just do the Arnold. So I took about a month off after the hand injury, um, and I was just doing exercise, you know, walking, light training, all these things, keeping myself healthy, keeping myself biologically, like, available. And I started getting, like, I use the term blue balls. I just wanted to train like a freak. I really, really wanted to, you know. I was so bored. So the second the hand was recovered, I was done with the Arnold mentally. I didn't care for the events. I just wanted to rip my face off and have a ton of fun training. And um, between all of the work capacity work I did while I was injured, I was in crazy good shape, and the excitement, I just came back a little too quick and a little too fast. And I was able to train through muscle soreness because of how good a shape I was in. So I literally did a 145 pound neutral grip banded bench, perfect form, no pain. And I tore my pec. So that's when it hit me. I was like, you know what? I need to take a step back. I need to reassess why and how I'm doing the things I'm doing. And I'm going to be taking the 2020 season off completely. I'm going to train for the goals that I want to train for. Because in the last two years, I did eight or nine competitions. So my goals not only were constantly shifting, so was my body weight. And I was kind of, you know, succumbing to the competition's demands and not necessarily doing what I wanted to do. And that's kind of what I noticed during the Arnold prep. So the pec tear ended up kind of being a blessing in disguise. Now I could take time off. I could focus on what I want to do as an athlete. And more importantly, let my body weight kind of figure Figure out where it feels most comfortable. Like let my system organize itself because although it's cool because I can do it, it's not great for you from a homeostatic perspective to go from a shredded 175 to a slightly chubby 220 in a one-year span, even though I did it in the healthy way. Another reason why calories in, calories out is bullcrap in my mind, because if that law was as hardcore defined as people says it is, I shouldn't have had any health problems along the way. I shouldn't have had any injury issues. I shouldn't have had any of those things because you're doing it healthily, right? So that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm focusing on the things I want to do and just trying to become the athlete that I want to be before I get back to competing. Because at this point, I've been doing strongman for eight years and I've done over 40 competitions in strongman alone. I've done six powerlifting meets and a CrossFit competition in my lifetime as well. So I have no uh, issues lacking experience. In fact, it's the opposite. I probably should and need to get stronger and take time off to balance out how experienced I am as an athlete. Because I'm only 25, but my training age is extremely high. Like, you know, I've, like I said, I've been competing in strongman alone for eight years. I've been at the world level in two different weight classes competed in all of them at some point so i've just done a lot relative to the amount of development i've let my body do yeah it's wild how much you've actually done i didn't realize you'd have done that many competitions especially from like you i i never thought i never even knew you did a crossfit thing like that feels like that's that so long long time ago. Field. 
you know, yeah. compared to what you uh, you need to do now. So I think a lot of people can relate to this or, or take advice from you on this is, um, how did you deal with that setback at the end when you, because you said you had a few different things going on in your mind. It was a blessing in disguise. But when that happened, like, did it like just beat you down or like, how did you deal with that setback of like, you wanted to compete at the Arnold, Arnold, you know, arguably the biggest strongman competition in the world, you know, other than like world's strongest man. So what the only you- difference between the two is pri- is privacy. So the Arnold's yeah. invite only and Worlds is open. So they're arguably the same level of competition. But it actually didn't beat me down as much as I expected. I was just more frustrated. Like, damn it, I just want to train. Like, that right. was really it. But I was kind of already going through that mental transition of, what the hell am I doing, man? Like, the Arnold events, for example, um, were on the lighter side for me. They were events that I'm already very, very proficient at. So I didn't get that, like, fire in my belly to do it like I expected. I had the fire to participate and to compete and to be a freak on my own. But it wasn't because of the competition. I recognized it was just because of who I am. I'm going to have that fire doing whatever I want as long as I enjoy it. So I think the biggest take home for people in regards to that aspect of my story is don't be afraid to follow what you like to do. You know, like I said, that pec tear was a blessing in disguise because it kind of gave me an out. But it's about what you want to do. You know, I think I have this conversation with clients and through consults all the time. You can't use a competition as a way to get yourself to a goal. The competition itself is the goal. So if you want to lose weight and you want to look better and you might want to have some ab definition, that doesn't mean sign up for a bodybuilding competition. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's a different way to do it. Just because you want to get bigger and stronger doesn't mean you sign up for a powerlifting meet. If you want to get better at basketball, you don't play baseball in the offseason. You play basketball. You see what I'm saying? So if you like something, do what you enjoy and do it because you enjoy it. And that's actually why I wasn't so upset about the Arnold because I realized I was like, man, I'm just training because I love to train and I love to compete and I love to be a freak. It doesn't have to be tomorrow. It doesn't have to be next year. It doesn't have to be a specific weight class. It doesn't even have to be a specific competition. As long as I'm into it and I enjoy it and I feel connected to it, I'm going to perform well and be a freak and that is really what i'm into gotcha yeah i think i think a lot of people are that's what they struggle with right is they do a competition because they feel like they that'll get them started that'll help motivate them and then the other problem is though is people set themselves up for failure in that aspect a lot of the time because they think it's going to happen overnight they don't realize the work that actually has to get put in to do it um so regarding people i guess clientele um coaching in general what uh you i consider you one of the, I would say the best, or not one of the best coaches I know by far. Um, and so what advice, if you want to keep it, yeah, you can take it any direction you want, but if someone's getting into coaching, there are coaches out there that are either, you know, trying to get started or take themselves to the next level. What piece of advice would you give them to, um, you know, get into this field and be, I guess, as successful as you are, or just to whatever ability or, or field they want to get into? Absolutely. I actually kind of think about this all the time because I try to think about like what little things do I do that kind of separate me from other people? Not saying that I'm like the cream of the crop or the best or anything, but like there's certainly a difference between me and who you talk to at your local LA fitness. Or me so, and you, 
Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it may be. I think the biggest difference is accepting and knowing your second and third order actions. So I think the biggest mistake that I see people make is let's say there's a scenario where you sign up with a coach and you tell your coach, I want to lose weight. The first thing that coach does is cut your carbs in half and put you on the treadmill six days a week. And it's like, okay, that's great. And that will do something. But what next? That's week one. How do you progress that person? What happens when that person's like, okay, you know, I'm bored. I've been doing this for 12 weeks. What's next? And I think that's the thing that people are missing out on are don't pull your ace card right away. Don't plan for just what happens now, except that second and third order action. So, for example, if Susie comes up to you and she wants to lose weight, actually listen to her. Look what she's doing with her life. And then make an appropriate decision in regards to where you're going to go long term. If Susie's already shredded out of her mind and already on a low calorie diet, then you can say, okay, let's cut your carbs and put you on the treadmill. But if it's your average person, that first order action is going to have a very different second and third order than the other scenario I just gave, you know? So I think as simple as it sounds, that's the thing people can take home and get the most results from. Before you make any decision and make any recommendation, what's going to happen as a result of that recommendation? And then what can I do afterwards? I think something a lot of people do is they shoot themselves in the foot by maybe you type the best program ever for someone, but Like I said, it's at the beginning of the program and their goal is going to take six months to achieve. So what the hell do you do after? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I see that daily almost when it comes to, you know, the average Joe in the gym, like coach or the LA fitness guy, or simply like in bodybuilding, everyone's a prep coach now. I mean, it's one of the most frustrating things in the entire world for me um, because that's more my background. And it's just like, I don't know, understand how, half these people can do what they do and get the clients that they have. It's just, it's crazy. Cause like you said, Susie getting crash dieted and you know, these for, and again, they come for a competition they're not ready for and they're going to extreme diets and short term fixes. And then they're a mess and it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And from both people's perspective, the coach and the athlete there, it's nothing more than just being impulsive. If you could take a second to sit down, zoom out, slow down, and think about what the actual best choice is, you're often going to get more results. You don't even have to be smart at all to recognize this is useful. You know, Everyone in their right mind knows how to start losing weight. If you're really overweight and most of the time you're eating crap food, you don't have to read a single damn article to tell me that a salad is healthier than McDonald's. That's intuitive information. So just like to uh, go along with that example – Applying your second and third order actions might be, you know, I have been working hard. Maybe I deserve a cheat meal and you feel extra hungry because you've been depleting your food intake. Impulsivity would say, hell yeah, man, you worked as hard as you could. You deserve it. Head right to McDonald's. But if you only think about that from an impulsive end, you might not realize that Well, tomorrow's a non-training day and I've only been dieting for two weeks. So a cheat meal tonight actually makes no sense. 
But I can get that satisfaction on Friday, let's say, because Friday is my hardest workout. And then Saturday and Sunday, I have a lot of work to do. So I'm going to be able to continually keep my meat high and that calories, all that food you eat will actually have some use for you, not just tonight and not just tomorrow, but immediately with your satisfaction. And now it actually fits your long-term goals because you thought about those second and third order actions. Yeah, I think that's the perfect explanation of it. And I think that'll, you know, if people can listen to that and take those, like those steps, you know, simple steps, even just from the. The analogy from like, this is common sense. This is, you know, a salad is better than a McDonald's. Like it, you know, sometimes the simple things are the, the best. Um, so I have one more question. If you're good with that, you good on time? For sure, man. Oh yeah, whatever you want. All right, cool. So with this being said, I feel like, and I'll ask this question, then we'll go to the last one because I think it'll lead in perfect. As a younger kid, you obviously, like you said, seventh grade, you started working out. You started to get into the physiology. You started to feel better about yourself. Do you feel like at a young age you kind of found what you wanted to do and get into as a career? Yeah, I think I was very lucky from that aspect. Excuse me. I think I was very lucky in that aspect because it gave me something to continually work on through those hard years of life. High school is difficult for everyone. Right after you graduate college, those next two years are difficult for everyone. So it gave me something to kind of cling on to um, as far as like things to do in a productivity standpoint. Because when I was, just like everybody else, going through those lulls and confidence in high school and after college, it was something for me to do that helped improve my self-worth and actually gave me a means to be a real person in the world, you know? Like, for example, you need a job, you need responsibility, and you need a minimum amount of criterion money to be a real person. Because otherwise, you have no say, you have no responsibilities, there's nothing for you to do. So it gave me at least clients to help. It gave me some satisfaction, and it gave me a way to learn more and improve myself when I needed it the most. So I'm very lucky in that aspect that I found what I wanted to do so young. But again, like kind of what I said earlier, I think it's just gravitating towards what you find enjoyable. And I think people are scared to do that. I think it's all too easy to say, uh, I like this, but that's a lot of work. I'm just going to get a job at the big company down the street, work nine to five, have my benefits and just go on from there just because it's easier to do. And then you find that these people five, 10 years down the line are miserable because they succumb to that easy option. Yeah. Do you follow Gary V? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So obviously people have his different rates on that, but like the big thing and I follow him and, you know, an aspect that I love is, you know, it something even recently post is, you know, everyone's chasing the hundred, the thousand dollars, the million dollars. They want to, you know, they think money's a thing and people talking about getting into what you actually want to do, making the $60,000 or whatever it may be and be happy what you're doing. Cause like you said, I think society's pressure is uh, maybe, maybe it's getting more awareness, but there's society's pressure is, you know, go to school, get your bachelor's, Go to ma- get your master's, go find a job, retire, da, 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 you know, at 65. So in your opinion, if you could give someone a piece of advice um, to help find themselves, what, what, what would that be in your eyes? Um, it's that perception governs everything. So I kind of actually today I just finished the rough draft for my first book and I use this awesome. example. 
Thank you. And I use this example in there. And it's kind of hits home with me because, you know, of course, being different, you're always going to get ridiculed and get insulted, you know, by random people just because people are cruel. But one of the ones I always got, especially at a young age and coming up as a coach where you're drowning in complexity and science and details and you're missing the point. And that is the same coin as saying I love the details and love biology and love all the little aspects of dieting and everything I do. You're just looking at it from a totally different perception. I'm still using all the details and all the little things that I love to do, but on one end of the spectrum, people or I could have even been looking at it negatively, and on the total opposite end, you're looking at it positively. So the reason I say perception is everything is, at the end of the day, I'm doing the same thing. People just tend to compliment me now versus ridicule me for it. So it's the same thing as, you know, the connotation to a cheat meal. You have to eat food. You're going to have to eat your next meal eventually. If you had a cheat meal that you shouldn't have had, yeah, okay, you were non-compliant, you lacked discipline in the moment, but you know what? It's not that bad because you're going to have another meal in a couple hours or the next day or whatever it may be. So if you choose to say and hang on that cheat meal as, oh, I'm a piece of crap, you know, I don't deserve anything now, I'm just going to starve and fast tomorrow and then start again the day after, you're looking at it through a negative perception when you could easily look at it positively. Like, you know, that cheat meal is a small percentage out of everything else I do. I enjoyed that cheat meal with my friends. And even though my digesting kind of sucks now, I'm just going to move on tomorrow. You can look at that same scenario every time in every aspect of your life through two total polar opposite different perceptions, and that's going to impact how you feel. So it ironically has nothing to do with science. It's just the fact that what you think and how you speak to yourself and what you do is realer, quote unquote, than what people tell you or what society, like you said, predicates that you should be doing and all those things. Um the way I actually came to be so closely tied to this concept is there's actually a study. This is a whole section of philosophy called phenomenology. And what it is, is it's the study of what the human experience feels is real relative to object-based experiences. So really what that means is what's real to you might not be real to me. So just to use science as a perfect example, if I want to talk about vascular endothelial growth factor, it's this very, very small polypeptide that gets secreted and helps muscle growth and all these different things. Keep talking for one second, grab the door. Yeah, you're fine. So if I want to talk about VEGF, it's not the fact that VEGF exists that makes it real. What makes it real is the fact that I care about it. And when I tell you about it, now you care about it. That's what makes it real. It's not the fact that it exists that makes the word real authentic. It's that you care. So that's why perception matters so much because the second you invoke emotion and what you care about into it, that's what makes it real. It doesn't have to just exist or just be a thing that's happening for it to be real. You can have something very, very difficult happen and choose to not associate with it, and therefore you're making it less real in that scenario.
So like I said, choosing to identify with your own perception and just reading a little bit into what phenomenology really is, is probably the most important thing people can do to find themselves. Perfect. No, sorry about that. I just had someone at the door. Um, so last, uh, that was gonna be the last question. I have one last thing. So I think it'll be helpful. So you talked about that aspect of actually how um, the perspective of people is, is so, so important to that, making that change. What do you think, or what do you do um, on a daily basis to create that mindset, to um, have that positive mindset, to not listen to the perspective of other people focusing on what you want and um, kind of the things that you're trying to achieve? Uh, it sounds really stupid and simple, but authentic meditation, you know, the only reason I'm such a big promoter of it is because it really has changed my life so much. Like I said, um, I've gotten a lot of ridicule, personal messages, comments, DMs, even in person, people being pretty rude to me, mostly because of that correlation between my intelligence and my age, but it's something that impacts you deeply. So that contributes to what we call white noise in your head. And that's like conflicting ideas or feelings of anxiety or basically, you know, things going on in your own mental realm that get in the way of you seeing clearly. So what I mean by authentic meditation is there's no noise. If you choose some biurinal beats, you can choose those. That's great. But basically there's no noise. You close your eyes and you sit there for a minimum of five minutes and you just let things dissipate. Um, one of my favorite books is The Confidence Gap by Russ Harris. So everyone should pick that up in my mind. But he we'll uses put a link in there for it incredible book definitely do the confidence gap by russ harris but he uses an analogy of their leaves coming down the stream so the leaves are your ideas and the stream is your mind your mind is constantly going but people get too caught up on the leaves or a singular idea did i leave the stove on holy shit i left the stove on oh my god i left the stove on but that's just one I idea you just said you left oh no, no. That's, that's an example but it's like you know holy shit, I left the stove on, but that's just one idea. What about the potential where you didn't leave it on? Or all these other ideas that spew through your head, they don't own you, your emotions don't own you. None of that stuff is super concrete. It goes back to, like I said, your perception. You're choosing to identify with it. So when you take the time to meditate, to let that white noise come down to a quiet simmer, and to authentically see and feel what you're actually you know going through that's how i think you can kind of dissociate from the negativity and everyone around you perfect no i think that's a perfect way to end it um and uh so i appreciate you coming on man i mean i think that was super Absolutely. informative people get to know you a bit more um and just your view from training um how you attack your business your clients uh advice for coaches you know people in general and i think if everything being said, that last couple minutes and just the, the creating that mindset and that perspective can be um, probably potentially the most impactful on just changing someone's lives. So I hope people listen to that and take some steps in the right direction to to start improving themselves. Because until the mindset's right, you're you're kind of screwed. Like you really only can go through the motions to an extent. So. Absolutely. If I didn't find meditation, there's honestly a probably really good chance that the performance vibe isn't even a thing. Like 
right before um, we started seeing like a s- increase in support, there was a time where I was actually really getting ripped on by a lot of people, no matter what. And a lot of it was public as well, like via Facebook and Instagram. And there was a time where I really questioned what I was doing. I'm like, man, maybe I'm wrong and crazy. And meditation was truthfully a way for me to dissociate from, you know, even people that were my friends kind of ragging on me about stuff to being like, you know what, this is just what I want to do and that's okay you know and that's one of those things they'll rag on you until you're good at it and then they're the ones asking you for advice it's the same thing yeah now i have a yeah i'm sure you understand now i have the complete opposite problem people only ask me for advice and no one cares about me as a person anymore anymore. (laughs) yeah exactly people only want the science now yeah i mean i was the 135 pound kid in high school that were like what are you doing in the gym dude i'm like you know tank top in the mirror like little scrawny 12 inch arms and it's, it's funny how that, you know, next thing you know, a few years later, those same people are like, hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? What do you eat? What do you do? You know, things change pretty quickly once you yeah, start getting out. Well, so cool, man. Well, I, I appreciate you taking it. You know, we went about an hour, but I think that's, you know, it was good because we got a lot of information in. And, um, you know, we'll definitely do another in the future. We can talk a little bit, you know, about some more stuff and dig deeper and strong, man, different things. So um, I appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll definitely be in touch soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Jeff. We'll talk soon, brother. Thanks, man.